and welcome back to Self-Care with Dr. Sarah. I'm Sarah B. And I'm Sarah R. And we have a third year anniversary coming up here at, at Dr. Sarah headquarters. And, <laughs> and one so thing... moving headquarters, is that it? <laughs> so we'll get a sheet cake, <laughs> you know, and pass around a slice to all the employees that work here. Um, we were thinking it is the third year anniversary that the podcast started, but it's also been three years since we had an episode explicitly about the imposter syndrome. Mm, yes. And we thought, let's check in on yeah. our current imposter thoughts, the nature of those thoughts, uh, and how we're dealing with them. Um, and partially, uh, it's timely, not only because it's the third year anniversary, but also because we're both on the job market um, or and or have undergone a major career change. So those imposter thoughts uh, were really hitting their resonant frequency. And the intensity of them was very strong for Sarah. Um, it's been strong for me, but poor Sarah. Her little boat has been rocked by the waves of imposter thoughts, and they're so high. They're high waves. <laughs> I mean, they, they come in swells, and I think any time I move is always peak, peak imposter syndrome time. Um, yeah. I mean, they're always there, but they're highest. They're highest mm-hmm. right around a job change, certainly. Like the tides. They come yes. and go. <laughs> they come and mm-hmm. go. I know, and it's, it's, it's frustrating because sometimes you feel like maybe I got a handle on this imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. But no, not really. It's just like gone for a temporary it's an relief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an illusion. It's a syndrome for a reason, as Sarah B. told me. Mm-hmm. It's not just some thoughts you have sometimes. <laughs> a thought you had once. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which sometimes happens. I don't know if you've met those people where you explain the imposter syndrome to them. I've definitely seen this a few times. And they're like, oh, yeah, um... Yeah, like, there was this one time where I thought that I'm like, you don't have the imposter syndrome. <laughs> like, like, good for yeah. you. That's a good thing. That's yeah. good. But I had that thought once at one particular point 10 years ago is not is not a syndrome. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, agree. <laughs> cough, cough, MIT professors. Cough, cough. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about maybe a recent imposter thought? Like fresh out of the pan imposter thought that you've just had recently? Sure. I mean, they're all kind of a similar flavor, but they evolve. And we'll get to this because it is really like an unfalsifiable mm-hmm. <laughs> right. phenomenon. Resistant but, to any proof. Yes. So I feel I just started a new position at Oxford and um, I have two fellowships here actually that are running <laughs> concurrently. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, as you it's do. A really good start to this imposter thought. <laughs> and and because like you know I'm here now, and I just feel like, a they made a big mistake. Like I definitely like so I I think I told you Sarah. I, like not only did I fool Harvard, I fooled Oxford. So right. I am I am like pro, and you fooled MIT. Let's be honest. I mean we're yeah. fooling mm-hmm. we're fooling mm-hmm. a lot of places. No, absolutely. Yeah. And so to me, I feel like this is the end. Like it'll now come out, you know, I might as well enjoy this three years while I have it because then there'll be a swan song of Sarah mm-hmm. R. You will not hear from me again. <laughs> why is, why is this the end? Like why in particular this is three the magic number of institutions like in your mind? Right. Yeah. I mean, so I can only fool so so many people so long, you know, like mm. fooled, mm. fooled uh, Simon's mm. Foundation, fooled St. Andrews, fooled, you know, Oxford right? Um, and, and Harvard. And, and anyone could like it, it's not. And also the truth is available to be seen, you know, because it <laughs> largely relies on like how I feel I haven't um, done enough uh, work or like produced enough results. And and I think that's like a big one. I think you hear it a lot in academia anyway. And there's no amount, I mean, unless you're publishing like 40 papers a year or something, there's no amount that like makes makes that feeling go away. <clears throat> that number um, doesn't exist. Yeah. It's unfalsifiable, which leads us to Sarah B's. <laughs> We've already said this on the podcast, but it's just my favorite thing. So Sarah B, <laughs> go for it, please. <laughs> oh, um, I have a thought experiment to see what the deal is with my imposter thoughts and whether it's actually imposter syndrome or or whether they're reasonable. And it's a thought experiment about my CV. 
So I think I've compared my CV before to like a black hole. Like it doesn't matter what goes in. You just can't see it anymore. So like it doesn't matter the number of accomplishments. They're no longer in my light cone. (laughs) I can't interact with any of the accomplishments that I once had. And so I thought, I thought to myself, I I did. I thought, I thought, um, what if I got the Nobel Prize in physics? Okay, so then in the awards section of my CV, I could put Nobel Prize. Then would I feel good about my CV? And I was like, no, I wouldn't. (laughs) I really, I was able to acknowledge, no, I wouldn't, because I feel so ashamed about my publication record. Yeah, yeah. So like, and then I was like, huh, you know, that's interesting. Like, that's really something. Think, think, think. Yeah. You know, that's probably an imposter. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I was like, hmm. (laughs) <laughs> right. So this this leads us to a thing that I was I was sitting at a table actually um at Oxford and talking about the imposter syndrome, mentioning that we were gonna do this catch up on our podcast actually. Mm-hmm. And and one of the the people at the table said, you know, it's kind of like because I mentioned your Nobel Prize right. C V story. Right. And they were like, You're kind of becoming the ultimate conspiracy theorist mm. about yourself because mm it's unfalsifiable. Like there are, there's nothing Mm. that, no data that you can take in. You'll just redirect. Well, well, that's because of this, you know, just like a conspiracy theorist does, you know, about, about. I'm grimacing. This is really, this feels really true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and we were just laughing because there's this joke now on, that's been going around on Twitter about like how, you know, a conspiracy theorist dies and goes to heaven and then God asks, you know, you lived your life as a good man. You may ask me one question. I'll give you an honest answer. The conspiracy theorist says, well, who actually killed Kennedy? And God says, Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone, using his own M91 rifle. And then the conspiracy theorist responds, wow, this goes higher than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's true. Like, there is nothing. There is nothing that anyone, even like the highest power in the universe could say and I'll be like well you're not checking in that often with with Sarah yeah. R really let's be yeah. honest there's billions of people out there so you know the more I think about this Sarah the more apt of a metaphor it is okay so you know how a lot of conspiracy theorists are also like survivalists you know and they make like a bunker in the woods and stuff and they like fashion fashion tools from, from things in nature okay so I was just thinking about this I'm kind of like the MacGyver of imposter thoughts too because right. I can take any situation and turn it into something that can apply to <laughs> validate my imposter <laughs> right right but anything right. twigs and stones I can make like a very complicated <laughs> tool and um one of the things I put on the list to talk about was how I did this recently um for a study that just came out yesterday that was on the archive um I think the author's name Kevin Flaherty at Williams College so he had a paper about the number of years it typically takes postdocs in astronomy to be hired Mm. into um, faculty jobs. And um, then he models different scenarios that would explain those distributions. So the distributions look like two Gaussians. For women, it peaks at like four years. Okay, Mm -hmm. so like four years post-PhD is the mean number of years for uh, a woman out of her PhD program to be hired. And for men, it's like five or six. Mm. So uh, at first glance, you know, you might think like, oh, it, are women like likelier to be hired then because they get hired faster? But um, if that were the explanation, then women would also be like around 75% of professors. So like yeah. if that logic applied, so it doesn't, that hypothesis doesn't match with the actual yeah. number of professors who are women. So they modeled it successfully as just like a higher rate in women of leaving the field. It's yeah. like three to four times likelier. So that's why the entire like rightmost part of the Gaussian for it's women has gone. been like shaved yeah. away because they're just gone. Yeah. But what I took from that <laughs> wasn't this like enormous problem like around the leaky pipeline. I was like, oh my God, I'm like three sigma <laughs> away <laughs> from the mean of this Gaussian. I'm like right. an ancient old postdoc can of beans on the shelf if can I remember of, can of beans an ancient can of beans that nobody wants to cook with the study is not like about you know what I mean I yeah. fashioned it into a weapon right to wound myself with right. thoughts because I was just like geez Louise like you know and I felt so badly 
just looking at that distribution. And then, of course, I played a game I love to play, which is to think of all of the really cool women I know who did get hired quickly and yeah. how I'm, like, less than yeah, and not as good as them. That's, like, a real – that's on my Greatest Hits album. Mm. Gets a lot of airtime. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean – I've played that album before. <laughs> I mean, not just not just with other women, just with anyone, you know, in our cohort or, you know, um, just people that, you know, uh, and it's just another way to 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 cherry pick the evidence. You know, it's a cognitive distortion, ultimately. Is it cherry picking? Is it? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. You know, you know I, I mean, it is, Sarah. It, it is because yeah. you're missing out on a lot of people who get hired later, too. You know, because you're only focusing, you know, you have your bias filter on. Because you're a conspiracy theorist, so you're, like, operating under the fact that this is true no matter what. And so you right. take in all the data that agrees with you and kind of forget, <laughs> you know, the, the Conveniently awesome... Conveniently forget. Yeah, you can forget all the awesome astronomers and women who are hired, you know, at year six. Which, like, if you look at this this Gaussian, it, like, is really flat from year three, four, five, you know. It's, mm-hmm. like, a pretty flat... Little uh, we'll link Sarah. to this, listeners. <laughs> I'm conveniently yeah. forgetting plenty of things um, when I tell myself that story, such as like whether I could have been a faculty member if I had yes. done things differently or made different choices. So that's something I'm conveniently choosing to forget. Mm-hmm. And instead, I focus on the jobs I didn't get. Right. Yeah. Rather than the ones I did not apply for or etc yeah you know so um we'll link to this study so that you can you can peruse it but you're not allowed listener you're not allowed to fashion it into a tool <laughs> to increase your imposter that's that's the one the one thing i'll yeah. say so i am like a survivalist like i can take yeah. anything and fashion it into an imposter that you know i just have like my weird identity like based on the fact that i know that i'm an imposter and mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. nothing's gonna change that right which which comes a little bit up for me because as I was just telling Sarah before we started, a new, like something that I haven't even really told her before is a deep fear of mine is actually <laughs> maybe we're just both imposters. <laughs> like, like, like the, is, Sarah, the Sarah funny. B and Sarah R uh, ship is actually rowing together on this one. And um, <laughs> like, like we're, you know, because I used to just always be like, yeah, but Sarah B is not an imposter. And now I'm like, well, what if, what if that explains yeah. it? You know, we're just, we're doing this podcast and Lord knows that it's all going to come over <laughs> for both of us. And in three years, you'll come back to iTunes for our next three year anniversary. And it'll be like, oh, those two. Yeah. <laughs> back when I thought they really had it together, they're gone. I'm living in my parents' basement. Like yeah. I predicted that I would be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can have our last <laughs> podcast as a conspir- from the conspiracy bunker of our parents' okay so what i was gonna say to this before sarah that i told you i would surprise you on the podcast was i feel like there's a really useful exoplanet analogy here okay so you know like um when you're trying to figure out whether a given transiting planet is like a true planet an authentic planet or whether it's like an eclipsing binary right um if it's only one yeah you know eclipsing binary right then it's plausible Yeah, okay, yeah, then it's yeah. possible. If there's only one planet candidate, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. It could, like, yeah. plausibly be. Yeah. But there's, like, a whole paper <laughs> on the fact... <laughs> there's, like, a whole paper on the fact that if you see two of them, yeah. like, two transits, the likelihood right. of two eclipsing binaries falling in the same line of sight yeah. is, like, effectively zero, enough that right. you can basically validate them as authentic. Yeah. So what I'm saying here is in the pencil <laughs> beam through astronomy <laughs> that hits both you and me... <laughs> The likelihood of being two eclipsing binaries is zero. We are authentic planets. And you know, all, the more, all the more reason why this conspiracy is really high up the chain. <laughs> <laughs> like, we fold the maximum number of people. We're a statistical anomaly and a like force to be reckoned Yeah, okay, so statistically, it's like we're, we've fooled 10 to the 6 people. Yeah, you know? that's a lot. So, like, yeah. in order, <laughs> given the odds and stuff, so that is it. impressive. That is impressive. And as an introvert, especially, <laughs> that makes me feel like, pretty proud. <laughs> For those odds to work out properly, we would have had to fool basically all of planet Earth. So yeah. let's get let's get on it. 
<laughs> I mean, it's plausible. <laughs> you know. I love that you think that because like between the two of us, there's um, N <clears throat> fellowships and I'm not going to say what N is, but you know, it's greater than zero. And I'm looking right at you in the eyes. You know that it's greater than zero. <laughs> Whatever. I know about all the fellowships you turned down in your first year and they're going to go on your gravestone. <laughs> Right. So I'm all I'm saying is it's greater than zero. Yeah. Um and so that really is remarkable. Like in this hypothetical scenario where we're both imposters, like that yeah. is truly wild to me. Yeah. That is yeah. a scenario where you like um you know, a referee <clears throat> is never gonna let that be published in a journal, basically. That's <laughs> what, <laughs> what I'm saying. There's just like no evidence. <laughs> um, well, why don't you share with me like a recent imposter thought? Let's see. I mean what I wanted to share was a couple things. One is, like I said, I just feel fundamentally like I, I have really fooled a lot of people and it's only going to, it's like, I feel like this dread that it's going to come out now. And so I feel like, and how this manifests is somewhat mm-hmm. self-destructive right now because I feel worried about doing things um, or, or, uh, I find it stressful to work because I'm just so scared that it's not going to work out. And mm. so that's that's something I've struggled with more in the last like month. Probably just moving here and, and everything. Like There's a lot to do. But just, um, you know, I feel like it's really a matter of time. And if anyone were to really look closely at me, they must be like, huh? Yeah, what? What? Why is she here? You know? Mm. <laughs> like, and, and Intriguing. Intriguing. <laughs> And, and they're just being polite and nice not to say anything. And, but this can only be held up so long. So then there's this panic of like, well, I have to work really hard to try to stop that from happening. But then this resigned nature of like, well, it's going to happen no matter what I do. And then Mm -hmm. feeling demotivated. So like, those are two outcomes that I've noticed more recently from my imposter syndrome, um, thoughts and fears. And so like, I really have to... Um, I've had to dig deep into like <laughs> connecting with the Pomodoro method again <laughs> and, That's a good and method. Just, uh, just like really trying to <clears throat> focus on just doing a little bit every day. And one thing, kind of this visual that I had uh, recently in a meditation was just a sense of, I, for, even though I don't feel I put a lot of self-worth on my academic or professional achievements it's still there and I think this is like part of society and certainly our western more capitalistic society of you know you have to be productive and efficient and you have to do more with less and work harder and work more hours and get more done and publish more papers in less time that are higher Mm -hmm. impact and have more citations like there's just like there's never you're never enough you know and there's Brene Brown I think talks a lot about this in her series which I really like is this we have this culture of never enough never enough you're not good enough and and it's there's nothing you can sacrifice onto that altar where you'll really feel enough not even a Nobel Prize not even a Nobel Prize and then so that culture like in that culture like how do you respond to that and so one thing that kind of came to me, and I'm not an expert at this by any means, but it's something I'm trying to cultivate, is an identity and a sense of self-worth that is unbuffeted by that external um, success. God, what a great solution. Okay, so so have you you managed to get this to work? (laughs) Well, so what I did, and so I've meditated with it a bit. I can't remember what I told you. Um, So it's like I had this visual of like this, because I was really sitting with the imposter syndrome. Uh, like in a in a deep meditative state for a couple hours, and I had this visual come up of like this flame that was like my intrinsic worthiness of a person, mm-hmm. and how and I think I told you like how I find it honestly easier to be a good person than a good scientist, mm-hmm. you know, because like in some ways being a good person, you know, I'm good, to, you know, I'm good with my friends and whatever, you know, like that seems to actually to be an easier goal. Mm-hmm. in my life than to be a good scientist. And I just have like this deep sense of unworthiness as a scientist, in part because of this imposter syndrome, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and just recognizing that I don't like that feeling. And, and it would be great if kind of in the same kind of self love and acceptance that I've given myself and others 
who have personal failings, like when I screw up, you know, and all that stuff, to have this sense of self-worth and worthiness and sense of self that's unbuffeted by that external, like either praise or failure on an academic front. And so the visual I had of this was like a flame inside of me, like a little candle flame. And then the visual was that it like burned up like the imposter syndrome. Like there was, you know, hmm. and, and, I, and it hasn't done that, you know, but this is like what I feel like I need to cultivate is this um, working a little bit every day to tell myself that I'm enough independent of whatever may come or not professionally like that 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 doesn't change my intrinsic worthiness or value as a person which is I I don't know it's just something I feel is hard to do in in our society that's such a great solution I really I feel like that's probably the answer you know when we can stop the podcast um because Sarah just solved all your problems just but it's like hard do, to do it's hard like to do do what Sarah said <laughs> uh, like that is the thing to, that is the thing to do um it's such a scientific solution like I guess it's paradoxically a scientific solution to divorce your um sense of worthiness from science because if you're trying the same thing over and over again and it never works you know like it stands to reason you should probably try something else. And I guess what I've been noticing lately is that I don't even really feel the positive reinforcement anymore, you know, yeah. which is like another sign that I'm, I'm just like impervious to reason, you know, in this way. Like I, I felt so miserable for months about this referee report that I was sitting on. Um, and it wasn't, I don't even think it was that hard of a referee report. I couldn't even like look at it firsthand I had to yeah. I usually have to ask um friends or colleagues to look at the referee report first and then like yeah. tell me how to prepare myself yeah. and it was like not even that bad of a report yeah. yet I, I felt anguish anguish I tell you mm-hmm. about not about not getting it done and like so much shame <laughs> and then finally I finished it and I sent it back into the journal and then it was like accepted mm-hmm you know, yeah. so it was just accepted. Like I didn't have to do anything else and I felt nothing, you know, yeah. like my heart just felt mute. I was like, oh, or, okay. or, or I felt like, um, all it felt was that I felt like a source of shame was no longer present. Like one little one right. was no longer present, but it wasn't replaced by a commensurate amount of joy or pride. Right. Yeah. You know, instead, I was just like, well, I should have done that a long time ago. Yeah, should have done, like, no... done it earlier. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's yeah. another sign, like, it's yeah. not even a working economy, Yeah. you know, where you have, like, <laughs> some income and some expenses, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, um, which I think is another sign that it's not, like, a tractable <clears throat> system, you know? So, like, I could try to feel my accomplishments more so like one solution ostensibly is to just focus on your accomplishments make a list of things make a list of all of the people who have said kind things to you you know and and their accomplishments and all of the wonderful emails that Mm -hmm. you've received about how you've touched people's lives or they Mm -hmm. think your science is really interesting like all the great talks you've ever given that's one way Mm -hmm. to try um to do it but I think Sarah you're really right that turning away from that calculus altogether is probably the way out it's really hard because yeah because even when you're saying like think about all the emails some of the emails I've received came up and I always just dismiss them you know I'm Mm -hmm. like oh well they were just being nice oh that was just saying or you know well they don't really know this well if they wouldn't have said that if they would have looked closer at my cv or whatever you know it's like there's the all the positives can be buffeted away you know and then the negatives can really sit Yeah, I don't know, like, with this sense of enough without it being tied to these externals. Maybe we can have another podcast about this, you know, in a few months when I've, when we've experimented more with things like this. But I find meditation one way, like a visualization Mm -hmm. of that. So that's something I've been trying to do. And also literally just telling myself that message, like reminding myself that message, especially on days where the imposter syndrome is high. But Hmm. just, I don't know, kind of remembering to say, you know, you are enough. And and just, yeah, trying to um, 
bring that into awareness and kind of a mantra, both, both in more, I'm trying to start a more daily meditation practice, which I think we, Sarah, you mentioned you were Mm -hmm. also pursuing. Mm -hmm. And so kind of bringing that in and just, uh, working on that. I'm certainly not there by any means, but I'm, it seems, it seems to be something that I think has some merit to try to explore. Yeah, I think that <laughs> that's like such a wonderful answer, Sarah. I'm still just like so floored. <laughs> I feel like I feel like that's just like probably the answer. Um, I thought we talked about this before. Like, if maybe we have, like video. maybe we have, but it, you just like stated it so beautifully. I don't know. Like, well, actually, I don't know if we have, Sarah. Maybe okay. we have. Like, we've talked about values affirmation. Yeah. You know, um, like bringing in traits about yourself that you really like Mm -hmm. and reflecting on those before trying to perform scientifically but I don't know I feel like in our first episode on imposter syndrome we also just kind of like reminded each other of our accomplishments yeah which I think that's honestly I think that's cool too Mm -hmm. um yeah but yeah that's really interesting I feel like I don't know like if I had to make a guess so let's imagine some like timeline where I do get to become a professor Um, I don't know what likelihood to assign this timeline, but let's say that it happens. I don't know how I'm going to feel. Like, will I feel joy? Like, I doubt that I, there's no way, first of all, there's no way that I'm going to feel the same amount of joy as all of the anguish that I've experienced from, from rejections of, of jobs that especially the ones I really wanted. Right. Yeah. You know, um, so that's going to be really interesting. I feel like it'll just be replaced Right. With um, new imposter thoughts about how yeah, it's a new goal that professor. Yeah. yeah. It's a new goal Ra- post. It's like you get this job, you need the next promotion. You get you get the tenure track job, then you need tenure. You know, you yeah. get this grant, you need a bigger grant. You advise, you know, this postdoc well on a paper, you need to advise two postdocs. I mean, there's... Yeah. I think this is where, like, that... If, if we base our self-worth on these externals and our sense of self, they it's just so prone the goalpost moves or it's so prone to like our own dismissal of it. And yeah. I, I think especially with junior faculty, you, you might feel some joy at the beginning of like, yeah, I got this job. I like this place or whatever. But then like quick you're into, Oh my God, I have to teach this class. I have to, you know, advise grad students. I am on these committees. And mm-hmm. I think you can like, it's an overwhelming, uh, new job, especially can take a lot of time to get, you know, your feet under you anyway. This goes back to the um, happiness advantage, which I re- recommend. Um, I think I've recommended before, but that mm-hmm. book, uh, this this thought I had about the flame was more recent. That was in the last like month or so, but where I've read similar things about this before is in the TED Talk, the happiness advantage, and also the book. Mm-hmm. And he talks about this how Sean Acker, know, Sean right? Acker, yeah, yeah, you know, you you get one accomplishment, you need the next accomplishment. So to base your happiness on those things is really fleeting and not successful. And, and the people that do the best and are most robust to stress and um, have the best work actually outcomes are people who are able to have, cultivate that sense of joy and fulfillment and happiness independent of work, and that comes first. And so there are things you can do to measurably increase that, which are things like exercise, meditating, gratitude journaling, Mm-hmm. random acts of kindness for people but you know th- these sorts it's in the TED talk I, I'd recommend it and his book has more strategies but just that these th- that's the necessary precondition for success which is what our whole podcast is of course about with self-care I view self-care in two ways I guess maybe I'm not going to make sense here but I view it partly as a way to just survive well and thrive but mm-hmm. then I think there's a separate aspect of it of to really be happy in academia and to not always have that sense of like I'm not good enough like I have to really work on this foundation otherwise my whole career is going to be a sense of the imposter syndrome and you see that when you talk to people at various stages like the imposter syndrome is really strong and I want to try to cultivate that sense of self-worth that I know the imposter syndrome will be there it'll always be there but to cultivate that um, that sense of self-worth that's independent of that professional accolade. I want to ask you a question. Sure. And my question is this. So um, you've shared this framework um, for how to grapple with imposter thoughts, like really constructively, 
which is sort of not to grapple with them at all, but to like pivot away from them and look at other aspects of your life. So what happens in real time? You mm-hmm. know, like when you're mm-hmm. texting me, like Sarah, my imposter thoughts are like so strong today. Yeah. Is it like they're out of reach? They like slip out of reach and you can't grab these solutions or is it just like exhaustion related you know I think for me I still tie my self-worth to to some professional aspects I mean that but the people that I see in my life who don't do that namely one person that I know Mm -hmm. um is just more generally okay with herself and more Mm -hmm. joyful throughout life independent of kind of what the externals are going. It's not to say she doesn't experience stress and and all of the stuff that we have as normal humans, but she's more impervious to those feelings. And I think you see this also like with, you know, kind of wise people that you know in your life, like that strong that strong sense of self isn't it's it's not easily buffeted by someone's someone's bad opinion of you on the street or or whatever that 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 can be there. And so I feel like it's something I want to strive for, but I'm not there by any means. So I fall quickly into the whole imposter syndrome loop again. And this is more Mm -hmm. just a reminder to like, I think it has to be a daily cultivation and it's not going to happen overnight. You know, it takes years probably, you know, truly, but certainly in the moment when I've felt those thoughts, I either, I've taken, sometimes I've just stopped and meditated. That's been one thing. Mm-hmm. Or, like, go for a run. Um, or, uh, yeah, practice self-care. I mean, that is also, I think, an effective in-the-moment Band-Aid strategy. Talk about the thoughts with people, you know, who, like like yourself, who you'll give me <laughs> instant feedback on how ludicrous they sound or what <laughs> other alternative explanations there are or, or, you know, remember this accomplishment. Oh, did you not forget that? That just happened yesterday. Right. You know? <laughs> So all these are good strategies because you need like, I think this is a more long-term fix. It's not a short-term fix. Yeah. It's like um, a lifelong goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something to, uh, something to strive for. I feel like a lot of the language that comes up around imposter syndrome in therapy is also to use the imposter thoughts as diagnostic. So identifying that you're having imposter thoughts is the the first thing yeah um so you're like I'm having these thoughts and then rather than saying I'm having these thoughts because they're true mm-hmm. you can say these thoughts these thoughts are a sign they're associated with patterns and this is a diagnostic of my exhaustion mm. basically you're like the reason why these thoughts are coming up is a combination of exhaustion and I feel a particular kind of um, hopelessness because like around some really gendered interaction Mm. you know that just like took all the wind out of my sails Mm -hmm. like a common response to that is for me to feel imposter Mm -hmm. syndrome or I guess other times what are other predictors of when I feel imposter syndrome when I'm um, feeling insecure about other aspects of my life Mm. or I feel like I'm I'm not where I'm supposed to be or I'm like really Mm. off script with respect to other aspects of my life then it will leak over you know so I used to call it like just like being down in the trash I just like slip down this hill (laughs) and when I'm low it's just like where all the trash is it's like not not high quality intel you know it's like where (laughs) like all the trash so like body image stuff gets in down there more just like all of the garbage is present yeah yeah I think the exhaustion is a big a big one so I feel like I don't know but I feel like I don't deserve to be exhausted yeah, neither do that's I. That's another one. Yeah, I have, like, but imposter that just... <laughs> syndrome about being tired. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, because it's part of the whole message of you're not enough, you know? Like, you have to work harder, faster, sleep less, you know, mm-hmm. get more done with less time. And and then you're like, well, I'm not, you know, killing myself working 80 hours a week, so why, why should I be mm-hmm. tired? And yeah. that's also kind of ludicrous, you know? Um, as total tangent, but one of the best books I've read in recent memory is Why We Sleep. Have you come across this book? Oh, by the Berkeley professor guy, Walker. Yeah, Walker. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So good. I'm like 70% of the way through it, but I highly recommend it just for, I've been recommending it to everyone I've chatted with in the past few weeks because it's really amazing in, in just linking sleep to a lot of cognitive and emotional uh, robustness, basically. Um, and how even little bits of sleep 
deprivation. I'm talking like 40 minutes, like the difference between sleeping eight and a half hours versus seven hours and 50 minutes has mm-hmm. like a noted cognitive effect on performance. And so you can imagine like when you're stressed, you're sleeping less and you know, I don't know about you. I think the biggest diagnostic for me that I'm having imposter thoughts, I mean, they can come at any point, but they're particularly strong when I can go to sleep fine the first for the first part of the night. And then I wake Mm -hmm. up because I've had like a base amount of sleep, say five hours or something. So the body has gotten whatever the first restorative sleep. And then, but it's still like only five hours of sleep. And then I'm just wide awake thinking, (laughs) oh my God, Dimitar must think I'm (laughs) just like a fool. And I, you know, and like I I had like, yeah, Dimitar and Jack Shoshak came up in my mind one one Mm -hmm. morning at 5 a.m. I told you about this. And I'm like, they know. They know. They're just being nice, but they know. <laughs> it's like, so funny. This is like um the movie like Paranormal Activity. <laughs> you know, where you like wake up and the words they know are just like creeping into the room and you're like, what was that? <laughs> yeah. No, it's bad. And then I can't fall back asleep. Like I'll be awake for two hours just panicking about this. And then invariably, like maybe I'll get like another hour and a half or whatever of sleep, but then you know, it's still like seven and a, you know, maybe six and a half hours, something like that. So I'm not sleeping well and, and I'm anxious. And that's when I know that I really need to ramp up the self-care. And also in ironically, part of that is really stepping back from some immediate responsibilities. If I can say no to anything on my plate, like I'll do it and just kind of getting back to, okay, let's get, you know, exercising, sleeping well, doing, you know, some Pomodoros to get some annoying, like those annoying tasks that you said, looking at the referee report, I know exactly what you mean. When we're stressed, we avoid it, right? Like I, I avoided referee reports before and they cause so much stress to even think about. (laughs) And then like when you actually do it, it's not that bad. I even, there was one thing I was having a huge amount of stress about. I like wrote down, I gave myself a star for every Pomodoro I did on that task that I had been delaying for, I don't know how many months. And it was less than a week of work, you know, in the end, but I had delayed like months. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Months. (laughs) I've worked my way into years. I've achieved that. (laughs) Haven't we all? (laughs) Um, Yeah. I guess it's the trash. Like it's the trash at the bottom. You know, so if I'm like down there is also easy solutions, like um, black and white style thinking or like false, what's the word? False dichotomy thinking. So, yeah, in a state of exhaustion, when I think um, I could never apply for such and such a job because I'll just humiliate myself. This is Mm -hmm. real, like about a job um, Mm -hmm. that I saw recently, which you would think would be really applicable to Mm -hmm. me. And yet I was like, there's no way I could do that job that and the people I could picture doing it right away were like two white men um and so I that was diagnostic too where I was like oh I'm exhausted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know so I'm like I've defaulted to this like really lazy stereotype mm-hmm. um yeah. of who embodies brilliance mm-hmm. um and that's also a sign of exhaustion yeah. um and anyway it was really I don't know I just observed myself doing it <laughs> Which I know, but I know that like using shame, um, even though I feel I richly deserve to feel shame, (laughs) I richly deserve all of the shame that I feel and more. That's how I feel. I do acknowledge that even though I deserve to feel shame, it's not actually a useful tool. Right. So that much I can acknowledge. So it's not that I don't deserve to feel embarrassed. That's like a whole, you know, or ashamed of how little I've accomplished or that I've frittered away year after year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, don't I know it. It's that, yeah, I deserve to be, to be punished. But, um, I, when I do apply this shame, it doesn't actually help. So that's more like, um, what utilitarian, Yeah. Yeah. you know, like a utilitarian approach where I'm like, but this isn't helping, you know, even I can see that where I'm like, well, if so, why not try something else? Right. Yeah, I mean, this is one of Brene Brown's core theses in all her work, is that shame, we often think as a society that shame should be an effective moderator on behavior, but it's not. Like, even for the worst cases of, I don't know, say, 
you know, um, child abuse or, you know, what, whatever it might be, like the worst of, that you can imagine, shame is not an effective strategy of turning that around. And we tend to apply it as a society very broadly, and then we apply it to ourselves. And when we apply shame to ourselves, we just drive the behavior more in secret, more anxious, more, Mm. we get more upset about it. We feel worse about ourselves. We reach out to that quick, like a quick release or something. And it's, it's not productive. There's other ways (laughs) that are better. So yeah, from a utilitarian standpoint, like shame is just never a useful thing, but it's something that we feel we deserve a lot. And I think this again goes back to the, this message of you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not, you know, and even if you are some of those things, well, your personal life is a wreck or whatever, you know, like we just, we find some way of being like, we're not enough. And, and that is a constant message that we see, you see it like glorified in all of these self-help books as well of like how to be all of these things, you know, and, um, it then just drives that shame loop or like the, the, you know, the very curated images we see of our our friends and colleagues online Mm -hmm. where, um, and this comes down to presentation. We talked a little bit about this before, but there's probably some real, certainly there's some real differences in how imposter syndrome presents itself. And I, we've both met people with strong imposter syndrome thoughts that from the outside you would never expect to think have them because they present a very, um, confident image Mm -hmm. and it's only through talking to them opening up you see that no they also have that and so one of my colleagues over here in the UK was saying maybe there's kind of also just some different presentations of the imposter syndrome in Europe and the UK versus the US because of that because of culturally what's expected in in self-presentation and I think you see this in the imposter syndrome where in men and women it, it sometimes is displayed differently, but the rates are the same when they look into it with the studies. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting too about like the different ways that imposter syndrome manifests. I'm sure there's like as many imposter syndromes as there are people and styles that it comes up. I don't know. While you were saying that, I was thinking if we compared between the episode three years ago and the episode now, I feel like at least we're feeling imposter syndrome about different things. So that's true. And like, that's kind of an indicator of the fact that we're progressing along in our career. So like, maybe, but I feel, I remember saying three years ago that I peaked, right? You hold on now. I get to speak first. And you, you said I, it was a mistake that I got this fellowship. It's just because I knew someone who was yeah. on the committee. Yeah. Okay. Now you have since won another <laughs> fellowship in which you did not have a previous advisor or yeah. mentor yeah. on right. the yeah, committee. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That, so that's yeah. important to, to acknowledge. Um, I feel <laughs> like lately some of my strongest imposter thoughts are Im- uh, advisor imposter thoughts right. yeah. or mentor imposter thoughts like right. That um, I'm steering the youth astray. Yeah. Um, ooh. Ooh, or that's our B. <laughs> like, especially during, uh, I don't know, like, I, I guess I don't really want to get into um, the real, I just, yeah. uh, I was feeling like recently that all of my work toward uh, Title IX compliance mm. was for naught, mm. you know, so it like clearly wasn't. Yeah. And, and never would in the story. It clearly wasn't and never would actually have a long-term impact and I was still, and, and so the only person who was suffering was me. Yeah. And I was like, well, my own tools are insufficient for me to deal with this situation. So why would I ever share this set of tools? Yeah. You know, why would I ever recommend this set of tools, like, yeah. to students? And that tool set involves, like, you know, trusting your instincts, yeah. like being gentle with yourself, right? Like trying to have a life that incorporates balance. You know, like basic things where I try to share those things with students, um, when I respond to them, what, you know what I mean? Which like Mm -hmm. rare enough, Mm -hmm. but, um, that was a very strong advisor imposter thought. And even I can recognize 
that I've come a long way because mm. now I have imposter thoughts about advising lots of students. Yeah, yeah. You know, rather than having imposter thoughts about um, like just science. Right. I'm having yeah. imposter thoughts about um, higher and higher level things. So I can acknowledge <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, certainly like how I rationalize past and current things just evolves because again it's unfalse it's a conspiracy theory it's unfalsifiable thing the chain the chain of the the command just goes up higher and higher and who I've deluded and and then sometimes I'm like but surely they know everyone knows you know and I'll just I'll just live out this little time that I have while they still right. let me and right. then it's right. all over right. <laughs> Enjoy it well. Enjoy it before they chase you out with pitchforks. I right, because it's it's gonna happen. You know, you'll see it in the Guardian. <laughs> oh, the Guardian's gonna cover it. Wow, that's newsworthy. <laughs> Postdoc run from Oxford with pitchforks. It's gonna that's happen. so funny that they're covering this. <laughs> Must be a slow news day. <laughs> I know. Can we all just wish for that slow of a news day? That's such the story would be would be the because this week especially has been like what a what a week of stories it's just I thought the apocalypse was coming with this week (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I know and like speaking of um conspiracy theories it's like you think the apocalypse is coming and then um, when it fails to come, it's just because it's coming next week. Oh, yeah. You oh, know? yeah. That's, like, yeah. also. Yeah. If they haven't <laughs> but, found out I... now, they'll find out next year. And, and if they don't find out next year, they'll find out the year after. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it just, like, takes the form of whatever is my set of circumstances. Yeah. You know, my imposter thoughts will just adapt. They're infinitely adaptable. Yeah. Because it's unfalsifiable, yeah, you know. Oh, Sarah, fine. I mean... <laughs> But I, <laughs> I'm going to remind you of this, the times when you're like, well, now I have an imposter thought. You, you claim, you love to claim that you finally at long last identified an imposter thought that cannot be refuted. <laughs> You'll be like, I finally have one. This one is real. <laughs> this one is real. You'll claim, you'll say. Yes. And um, I'm going to remind you of this conversation the next time you say that to me. <laughs> It'll happen, because all imposter syndrome thoughts feel that way, right? Like when you when you have an imposter syndrome thought, right. like you might intellectually know that it's an imposter syndrome thought. Like that that thought often crosses my mind, but it has little staying power power because I really believe it. I'm like, no, but actually, you know, right. and and that's why it's a syndrome. But you know, it's like I think people sometimes they feel alone in that. Like I still when I talk to people about the imposter syndrome there's still this sense of, well, Sarah, you say that, but look at like what you've done. I like, I can't imagine that these are actually real thoughts for you. Like they might, you know, you're just saying this to make me feel better. And, and I think the imposter syndrome is very isolating in that because we tend to really think, no, actually I'm alone in this. Like I am the true imposter, you know, and, and these thoughts are actually real and, uh, and true and re- uh, like reflective of truth. And, and that's what makes them so deceptive because they feel quote unquote true. And so they grip your heart and it's very hard to dislodge them because even with like knowing about the imposter syndrome and talking about it, like the thoughts I have and, and talking with you about it, it helps, it helps a lot. And like doing some of these exercises, it helps, but they still feel true to me when I think about them. Mm. And that's, and that's why. That's why it's a syndrome, and why we'll be talking about it. I'm sure. <laughs> you know. Let's take a guess um, before we before we go. Let's take a guess about what imposter thoughts we'll be having in three years. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so hopefully we'll both be in faculty jobs or a job that we have chosen because this is what we want to do. Okay. And so I'm gonna assume that at that point we will be saying. Mm-hmm we shouldn't have gotten that job because, because we were (laughs) not good postdocs. Like Mm -hmm. we somehow managed to skirt through the fire by like the trickery and subterfuge. Yes, exactly. Exactly. With smoke and mirrors from like some, you know, 
uh, some series of luck and serendipity. And so now we're here, but really actually now is the end because you, you there's no other person <laughs> to fool. Like we will, soon our students will know that like, because we'll be interacting with them. Our students. They'll yes, know, uh... they'll know that we're dumb and they'll know, they'll question our confidence and, uh, we'll be trying to hang it together. Yeah. That's, that yeah. could be, you know. That's really good. I feel like I'm going to have imposter thoughts around, um, like, teaching. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be thinking that my students are all smarter than me. Mm. Or that, like, a lot of them are, yeah. you know. And so the things that I'm teaching are not, like, interesting. Right. Um, that's, like, my hot guess. Yeah. For what <laughs> it's probably going to, it's probably going to come true. Like, yeah. TBH. Or maybe it'll be, like, grant-related. I already avoid uh, teaching graduate student level or upper undergraduate level courses. Like I was asked to teach um, electricity and magnetism out of Jackson this year at Oxford. I was like, hard pass, uh, hard pass. Oh Give that to God. someone else. <laughs> like I am not <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> that reminds me of a nightmare I have about being back on the volleyball team. And my coach is just like, Ballard, you have to go in. Like the team needs you. And I'm like, but I haven't played volleyball. <laughs> this sounds like a nightmare where the coach is like, hey, we need you. You have to play Jackson. And I would be like, wake up. This is a Bad dream. This can't be happening. I've got. I can't do Jackson. I know. Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. And I just rather than dive into those imposter thoughts, I was just like, hard pass. Don't need to teach this year. So nope. <laughs> well, I know one thing that'll be true in three years, Sarah. Do you want to guess what it is? What? Um, I think we'll still be friends. Yeah, we will. Of course. <laughs> um, and on that note, yeah. listeners, thank you for listening. Um, to self-care with Dr. Sarah. Um, If you like the podcast, you can rate and review us on iTunes. We love getting your comments and your letters. Yeah. We just really love it. <laughs> so, it makes our days all every single time. Mm-hmm. And I screenshot it and save it to my computer, so it makes my days and future days, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, shout out especially to the listener that I met in San Antonio. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, who said she listens every day? Question mark. So, <laughs> um, shout out to you. You know who you are. Um, and if you have um, a desire to follow us on social media, um, we're on Twitter at Doctors Sarah Care, um, and we are also on Tumblr at Doctors Sarah Care dot Tumblr dot com, and that's where we will post um, the links to mm-hmm. some of the things that we discussed in this episode. So, on that note. Um, Thanks for listening. I'm Sarah B. I'm Sarah R. And thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. 